Father God, uh, today we, we come into your house, and Lord, we, we've just come through um, what for some has been a, a, a wonderful week, but Father, for many this has been a, a dreadful week. Father, we've just entered a new year, and as we look back at 2014, it seems that the world kind of stumbled over the finish line into 2015. Father, we've seen the scourge of Ebola in Africa. We've seen the scourge of tensions in this nation here. We've seen the scourge of war in the Middle East and planes dropping out of the sky in Southeast Asia. And so today, Father, as Jesus taught us how to pray, we say with a new earnestness, deliver us from evil. Father, as we come into your presence this morning, I pray that you will indeed continue to deliver us from evil. Speak through me today, Father. May my words be your words. May your spirit speak to each of our hearts this morning. In the name of Jesus, I ask. Amen. Uh, In September this year, I was in the Philippines, the island of Palawan, which uh, is a long pencil-like island on the western side of the Philippine archipelago. And... um, I spent some days in, in the mountains there where we have some missionaries, and um, <clears throat> up in the mountains there, um, animism and the worship of spirits is, is prevalent. Um, as, as you go to sleep at night, and I was there just for the rice harvest, you hear these, these drums going through the night. And those drums, they beat at about 65 beats a minute, and they kind of get into your system. And before you know it, your whole body is kind of quivering in rhythm to these drums, And these drums are not for for musical purposes. Those drums are calling up certain spirits to help with the rice harvest. And uh, when you're up there in the mountains, you see um, holy men, as they're called, and and their job is to dance themselves into a trance and invite spirit possession. Uh, And you see um, a man uh, doing this, and others are coming up and blowing on him like this. And what they're doing is they're inviting spirit possession and before you know it, that man is spirit-possessed for a, for, a, for a short period of time. And then the game is for as many villagers to see, um, how many men does it take to hold this guy down? And so spirit-possession is viewed as a Sunday afternoon entertainment in that part of the world. And uh, on, on coming out of the mountains, um, I, I felt kind of okay. Uh, it's a long trek up into the mountains, and it's a, a steep trek out of the mountains. I had a few falls on the way out. I trashed my backpack. Um, at one stage, it never made it home to Berrien Springs. And two days after coming out of the mountains, I was sitting in um, our missionaries, um, the, the, the logistics base down in the lowlands, and I felt this heavy pressure come onto my shoulders. And um, I was sitting at the desk, and this, this pressure was pressing me down and down and down. And then it felt like my whole chest was caught in a vice. And my chest was being constricted like this. And, like, oh, and, then, oh, and then these pains started coming across my upper back. And um, I kind of sank to the floor. And uh, our missionary, Kent and George, says, are you okay? I said, uh, maybe this is, uh, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Maybe it'll just pass. And so I, I, was, I sank to the floor. And I said, maybe I'll just go and lie down for a minute. So I kind of dragged myself um, into my room where there was a cot. And I lay down on the cot and I was gasping for breath. It felt like there was an elephant sitting on top of me. And, um, you know, you, you kind of think, is this a heart attack? Oh, what's going on here? And uh, you don't quite think it in so calmly as that, I can assure you. And uh, so I was lying on the bed, gasping for breath. And I eventually cried, Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. And the pressure started to go. And the pressure started to go. But I could still barely breathe. And so uh, our missionary said, well, let's take you to the hospital. And so we got into the car. Or he kind of lifted me into the car. And we drove. It was merely 100 yards, but for me that was 100 miles. We drove to the public hospital there. And he kind of uh, carried me in. And um, it's a kind of hospital where even if you're at death's door, they say, join the queue. And he said, this guy is dying. Would a doctor please see him? And they said, well, join the queue. So he said, well, we're not staying here. So he dragged me out to the car. We drove to another hospital a private hospital, which was, I don't know, half a mile away. And, and he dragged me in, and he f- went to the first door that said doctor on it. And he dragged me into the room, and there was somebody there having a consultation. And uh, I initially said to this lady, you know, op it. So she opted it, as we say in England. 
And he plumped me down in front of the doctor and he says, this man is dying, treat him. And um, the doctor turned out to be a, a pediatrician. Um, <clears throat> so um, anyway, she, she looked at me and she says, what's wrong? I, I can't breathe. <coughs> it wasn't very nice. And I felt kind of embarrassed, you know, to be putting her out like this. And so um, she said, well, let me take your, your heart. So she put a stethoscope on my chest, and she said, well, your heart's absolutely fine. She says, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. She says, why can't you breathe? I said, oh, I don't know. So she said, well, lie down. We'll take an EKG. So I lay down on, on the couch there, and two nurses came in to do the EKG, and they, they took my shirt off. And I was lying there gasping for breath, and, and the first nurse's face appears open like this, and she says, are you from America? I oh, yes. She says, would you take me to America? No. She says, I'm very nice. <gasps> no, she says, do you have a wife? I said, <gasps> yeah. She says, that's no problem, no problem. Just take me to America. I said, <gasps> just do the EKG. And she put the, the things on me. And then another nurse came beside me, and she put the, the I don't know, those electrodes on my left arm. And, and I heard this other voice saying, she says, I'm pretty. She says, take me to America. I said, <gasps> just do the EKG. And um, the EKG turned absolutely fine. So... Um, you'll be glad to know I came home single from the Philippines. <laughs> well, um, by about le- late that night, I could breathe properly again. The pain was gone. The, the, the pressure on the chest was gone. I came home to the States and spoke with my wife about it. And she said, well, she says, you've, you've just turned 40, which is a polite way of saying you a while ago, actually. She said... Um, and if I check your health insurance policy, you're supposed to get an annual checkup, and you've never had one. So why don't you go along for your annual checkup? So I went to the, for my annual checkup, and I told the, 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 the person there, and they said, well, um, let's do an EKG. And they said, no, your heart's fine. And they said, let's do a stress test. And I said, yeah, I've got a lot of stress. No, she says, you get on that treadmill, and we put some electrodes on you, and we check your heart rate and your lung capacity. And she said, you're absolutely normal, and your heartbeat is 60 beats to a minute. You're pretty healthy. And so they said, well, let's send you for a CT scan if I get it right. I think it was a CT scan. And so I went up to the hospital, and, um, and then I had an ECG scan, and all these scans, and every scan came back saying, you're basically healthy. There's nothing wrong with your heart. And so <clears throat> um, as I reflect on that experience out there in the Philippines, where when I come home to the States, every test comes up blank. There's absolutely nothing wrong with my heart. I've been wondering what was going on out there because I was living in a part of the world out there, even if only temporarily, where the spirits are very, very active. Spirits are real, they're active, and they are oppressive. In our Western world, we've been shaped over time by the Renaissance, the Reformation, and the Enlightenment. And the result is that our Western worldview is basically a rationalistic and a scientific worldview. We assume that there is no reality beyond the natural and the material universe. If something cannot be measured, it does not exist. And whether we like it or not, this Western worldview, the rational scientific worldview, it has directly impacted Western Christianity. Uh, You don't have to read very far among modern theologians to realize that the stories of Jesus casting out demons in the New Testament are are viewed at best with a sneer and at worst with downright mockery. There's a very famous um, theologian, William Barclay. Maybe you've read some of his commentaries on Romans. And uh, when William Barclay, who is a a well-renowned theologian, um, I have some of his books on my shelves at home, when he writes about Jesus casting out demons... Um, he says that Jesus came not to cast out demons, but to eliminate pain. Which is, um, it kind of softens the the message um, from the Gospels. Jesus came to eliminate or to defeat pain. And by implication, Jesus himself was a victim of primitive superstition. And many people in the West today assume that stories of demons are simply nothing more than primitive superstition. That if you believe in demons and demonic attacks, that there's something wrong with your head. That you're to be pitied. And yet the irony is that whilst many Western Christians are moving away from the understanding of the reality of Satan and his fallen angels, our Western world is drowning in the occult. 
If you go to Barnes and Noble today and you look for the Bible section, it's only, you know, it's so large. But you look for the spirituality section or the occult section, and it um, outnumbers greatly in terms of numbers of books, um, the Christian books in Barnes and Noble. You don't have to look very much at modern TV, cable TV or movies from Hollywood to realize that the idea of superheroes and people with special powers and people traveling across time is, is prevalent in what Hollywood pumps out. And our children are being raised in an environment in which they, we, we, they, may, they may be taught by the world around us to mock the idea of God and his angels and Satan and his angels, but they're being raised in an environment where, where um, occultic themes and imagery um, are all around them. So the Western skeptics may mock the Christian portrayal of Satan and his demons, but the reality is the Western world is, is kind of hooked on Satan and his, and his fallen angels. So this morning we're going to first of all look at what we read in Scripture, then we're going to look at what we can proclaim from Scripture, and then we're going to look at what we will practice from Scripture in response to the reality of demons. So the first thing we we read in Scripture is that it is a fatal misconception to assume that God's people are immune from the attacks of Satan. The scriptural message is loud and clear. If you are in the kingdom of God, you are a special subject of Satan's attacks. We may look in the Bible at some famous examples, the most famous of which was Job. Now, Job was directly harassed by Satan. Would you agree with me? Read Job chapter 1, where God gives permission for Satan to personally attack Job. And Satan is permitted to attack Job. Um, His children all die. His wife turns on him. His reputation is shattered. His, his, His cattle, his sheep, his goats, his camels are stolen. And uh, finally, Satan is given permission by God to attack Job within his physical body. And what to um, a modern physician might look at Job and said, you just have boils all over you. The reality is that, yes, there is a physical manifestation of boils, but there is a satanic cause for those boils. In the same way that when, when the disciples brought a boy to Jesus suffering from epilepsy, Jesus recognized that beyond the physical symptoms of epilepsy, there was a satanic cause for that epilepsy. Satan was given permission to harass Job. At no stage do we read that Satan possessed Job, but we do realize that Satan was allowed to, 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 to harass uh, Job. The turning point in the attacks on Job by Satan came, and we see this slide on the screen here. I mean, Job 42 and verse 10, the, st- the turning point for Job... Um, was when it says there in Job 42.10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. Prior to that, the only prayers we read of Job are his prayers for his children in chapter 1. But when Job starts opening up his spiritual concerns to be praying for other people who are not related to him, that's the moment to which God delivers Job from satanic oppression or um, harassment. When Job was stopped focusing on his own difficulties but started to intercede for his friends and was primarily concerned for the spiritual well-being of others rather than his own spiritual well-being, at that moment God delivered Job from satanic harassment. Uh, that kind of harassment is not unknown among Christians today. Um, in '96, I went to Azerbaijan to a region called the Nakhchivan Autonomous Republic uh, which is, it flows easily off the tongue, uh, Nachchivan, as we used to call it. And um, there were two Western Adventists there, myself and a guy who now lives in Tennessee. It was a region of about three-quarters of a million people, ex-communists, all Shia Muslims. And um, I went and stayed with him on my first night in a small Soviet apartment block. And the next morning, I couldn't get out of bed. You may have never experienced this yourself, but he'd had the same experience on his first morning. As I, as I woke up the next morning, it felt there was a ton of bricks just holding me on that bed. I couldn't see that ton of bricks, but it was real. And I lay there on that bed. I couldn't move my arms. I couldn't move my legs. I knew I wasn't paralyzed. There was a force holding me down on that bed. And it seems to me at the time that maybe Satan doesn't want us to be here. And it was only through crying out to Jesus Christ that I was able to get up from that bed and a year later, there was a church for the first time ever in that region of 100 ex-Muslims. And you say, praise God for that. 
Satan knew what was going to happen, and he was doing his utmost to stop the kingdom of God from going forward. The next, um, pass- the next person we look at in the scripture who was harassed by Satan was the Apostle Paul himself. Now, I didn't mention this much last week as I was talking on the, the conversion of Saul to Paul, um, but Paul, perhaps the greatest apostle to have ever lived, we read in the scriptures that he endured constant demonic harassment during his apostolic ministry. And you say, well, where did you get that from? Well, the next um, uh, slide on the screen tells us, 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7. Paul says, he talks about, in 2 Corinthians, 12 and, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about the physical reality of being an apostle, that he was shipwrecked and burnt, um, um, stoned and beaten and in danger from friends and in danger from enemies alike. So Paul talks about the horizontal dimension, that which he can see in the life of an apostle. But in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the spiritual dimension of being an apostle, and he talks about the fact, I know of one who was caught up into the third heavens. We say, what is he talking about there? Well, the Jews believed in seven heavens, that God dwelt in the seventh heaven, and they had a form of mysticism called Merkava mysticism. Merkava is is a chariot, like Elijah went to heaven on a chariot. And uh, there were seven gates in the seven heavens, and you had a scroll with seven seals, and to get through each of the gates to, uh, to the next level of heaven, you had to break one of those scrolls. We find a scroll with seven seals, don't we, in Revelation? But this time it's not us trying to reach God. This time it's God reaching down to us with the seventh, the seventh seal breaking open to reveal the second coming of Jesus Christ. But in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul discusses the vertical dimension of his life as an apostle, his revelations from God, but he also discusses the negative spiritual realities of being an apostle. He says, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations... Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was giving me in the flesh, a what? A messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. And that word messenger is literally the word angelos from where we, which we normally translate as angel. So God allowed Satan, the, the, the obvious interpretation of this text, we may try and spiritualize it, but the obvious and literal interpretation of this text is that God allowed overt demonic harassment on the Apostle Paul throughout his apostolic ministry. Why would God allow this? Because at the, the end of that sentence it says, God allowed this to keep me from being too elated. Paul, the guy with the um, Ivy League education, the brilliant mind, socially well-connected. God gave him, allowed Satan to harass Paul in order that Paul might remember his daily dependence upon God. That his Christian life, his Christian experience, grace from God, all came from God. And that Paul could not minister in his own strength, but he could only minister in the strength of God. The next person we find in the scriptures, we read in the scripture, is is the apostle Peter. And in the famous dialogue of Matthew 16, Jesus taught his disciples about his impending death in Jerusalem. And Peter took Jesus to one side, and we read in Matthew 16:22, we read that Peter began to rebuke Jesus, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. And in response, Jesus recognized that it was not Peter speaking here, but it was Satan. And so the next slide on the screen, we read what Jesus said to, to Peter. Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block for me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. There is no record that Peter was ever possessed by Satan, but he allowed Satan to influence his thoughts and his words, if only temporarily. And in this instance, when Peter rebuked Jesus and said, no, you're not going to Jerusalem to die, Peter was saying the same thing to Jesus as Satan did in the third wilderness temptation. Where Satan said to Jesus, you can have all the glories and kingdoms of this world without the necessity of Calvary if you bow down and worship me. When Peter said to Jesus, you don't need to go to Calvary, it was the same temptation to Jesus. And so Peter was, even if unwittingly, he was speaking the words of Satan. And when we directly contradict or nullify a direct teaching of Jesus Christ, we are also allowing Satan to take temporary control of our minds and our words. We need to be serious about what we say to people. We need to ask ourselves when somebody asks us for counsel or advice, um, am I going to directly contradict the teachings of Jesus here? Am I going to kind of finesse them so that somebody's got an out, an out clause from what Jesus really said? When I share the gospel with somebody, am I sharing the gospel light or am I sharing the full gospel with them? The other person we find in the scripture, we read in scripture who was possessed 
uh, by, by Satan. It was actually Judas himself. And John records in six, John 6.70 the fact that Judas was in fact possessed of a demon. Read in the next slide on the screen uh, from John chapter 6 and verse 70. After Jesus has spoken about himself as the bread of life and, and so forth, uh, most of the followers of Jesus leave Jesus. And Jesus turns to the twelve and said, are you going to leave me as well? And uh, the, the twelve say, no, we're staying with you. But Judas has a problem. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. The word there is diabolos, a uh, devil. Diabolical is an adjective we get from that. The word means devil or slanderer. There is no record of Jesus Christ ever delivering Judas from demonic possession. Jesus healed everybody who came to him seeking relief from demonic possession or harassment, but Judas never came to Jesus and asked for deliverance. In fact, in the upper room, just before Judas went out and betrayed Jesus, <clears throat> and shortly thereafter he hanged himself, we read there in John 13:27 that after Judas had received the bread, Satan entered into him. And so one of the twelve was demon-possessed. And Jesus never delivered him. He delivered everybody else who came to him for healing, but Judas never asked Jesus Christ for healing. The twelve certainly did not suspect it. You might say that Judas was the equivalent today of a highly respected denominational treasurer, actually possessed of a demon, possessed of Satan, according to John 12. And nobody suspected it. The lesson from the life of Judas is that unless somebody turns to Jesus Christ for deliverance, there will be no deliverance. And people around may not suspect that someone is suffering from demonic harassment or possession. Only Jesus can see that. But if we do not turn to Jesus for deliverance, we will not experience that deliverance. So this is what we read in Scripture about certain characters in the Bible who are harassed by Satan. Job is a good example. Paul is a good example. Peter is a good example of someone who gives temporary control of his mind and thoughts to Satan when he starts expressing thoughts that are opposite to what Jesus has, has just been teaching. And Judas is a good example of someone who professes to be in the kingdom of God but was actually possessed by Satan. So what then do we proclaim from Scripture? Well, the Scriptures teach that behind the scenes of earthly affairs, there are invisible supernatural forces for good and evil engaged in a cosmic warfare for the allegiance and ultimately control of every human being. Ephesians 6 and verse 12 in our scripture reading. The scriptures teach the existence of a literal personal devil, once called Lucifer, Isaiah 14:12, and now named Satan, the accuser of the brethren, who was once the highest ranked and most beautiful angel in heaven. Ezekiel 28, 15. The scriptures teach that Satan experienced a moral fall and took a third of all the holy angels with him into rebellion against God, Revelation 12.4. And that at the conclusion of that first war in heaven, Satan and his angels was literally and physically ejected from heaven, eventually coming down to planet Earth, Revelation 12.7-9. The scriptures teach that Satan and his fallen angels, we'll call from this point on demons, continue to this day in 2015 in waging ruthless war against the kingdom of God and all that is good and worthwhile in the universe. Revelation 12, 13 through 17. And the scriptures also teach in the book of Revelation, chapter 16, that during earth's final days, that is today, Satan will send forth three demonic spirits who will delude and control the overwhelming majority of the powers and inhabitants of our world to fight against God Almighty in the Battle of Armageddon. And they will persecute God's faithful people. The scriptures reveal that at the end of time, that there will be an upsurge of demonic activity worldwide. And we're deluding ourselves if we don't think that is true. The scriptures teach that Satan will bring about an overwhelming delusion at the end of time to deceive, if possible, even the very elect of God and those who do not love the truth. And notice that Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 9 and 10, he doesn't say that the deception will come upon those who, who, who um, will not come upon those who do not know the truth. Paul says the deception will come upon those who do not love the truth. There's a difference. Those who love the truth as opposed to those who merely know the truth. The scriptures teach that fallen angels tempt fallen humanity. They make attractive to us sins of commission, 1 John 3, 4, sins of omission, James 4, 17, and that they taunt and, and torment fallen humans. 
The scriptures teach that the forces of evil that weigh down humanity are so powerful that we, in our own unaided humanity, are powerless to withstand those forces of evil. We cannot fight against the forces of evil on our own. Yet the scriptures teach in the first Christmas story, the arrival of the kingdom of God set up a direct confrontation between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And John chapter 1 and verse 5 says that the light is shining in the darkness and the darkness did not overwhelm it or did not overcome it. And I love that verse because John uses the present tense. He says the light is shining. That means the light continues to shine today. That the light of Jesus Christ continues to shine today in the person of his saints, you and I here this morning. And the darkness could not overcome it. That when we are secure in Jesus, Satan may attack, the gates of hell may attack, but they cannot prevail. The scriptures teach that, 1 John 3 verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Now, I was buying a suit on Monday night with a couple of friends from here. And we went down to um, South Bend, and, and there was a guy there who was serving, and he said, what do you do? Well, I'm a preacher, and what do you do? Well, I'm a preacher, and what do you do? Well, I'm a preacher. There were three preachers buying suits. And he said, well, I'm a lay preacher. He said, I, I want to test your knowledge of Scripture. He said, uh, what does John 3.16 say? I said, well, that's a pretty easy test, isn't it? He says, okay, now I'm going to test your knowledge of Scripture. What does John 3.17 say? So, well, that's pretty easy as well. So we quoted it for him that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. He said, okay, now I know you're preachers. So um, uh, we, we got a pretty good deal from that guy as we all build our suits together. And we tend to think of Jesus coming into the world to save us. That is true. But John also says in 1 John that the reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of Satan. It wasn't just to save us from sin, it was to destroy the works of Satan. And in his first sermon at Nazareth, Jesus declared that he had come, and I quote now, to proclaim release to the captives, that is, to deliver the victims of satanic harassment and possession. Now the scriptures teach that while, and I'm quoting Ephesians 6:12 here, our struggle is not against enemies and flesh and blood, but against the rulers, remember that word, rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Those rulers, when you compare them with Romans chapter 8, you realize that Paul is talking about fallen angels. When Paul goes on in Romans chapter 8, he says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, those are good angels, nor rulers, those are fallen angels, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else nor creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is wonderful news, brothers and sisters, that demons cannot separate us from the love of God. They may try. They may try to discourage. They may try to depress. They may try to divert. They may try to deny our faith. But according to the Apostle Paul, that demons can never actually separate us from the love of God. The Scriptures teach that Jesus Christ has never lost an encounter with Satan, period. That in the heavenly war before the creation of this world, when Jesus led the armies of heaven against uh, Satan leading the, the, uh, the armies of the rebellion, Satan lost that war and he was cast out of heaven. When Jesus met Satan in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting and prayer, once again Satan was defeated and he was driven from the presence of Jesus. That thereafter Jesus went around in Galilee and Judea delivering the captives of Satan and setting them free. Why could he do that? He said that you cannot enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless first you have to bound up the strong man. And in the wilderness, the showdown in the wilderness, Jesus had bound up Satan and was now at liberty to deliver the captives of demons. And the Bible also teaches that in the final conflict between good and evil, <coughs> Christ will once again triumph over Satan and Satan will not merely be cast from the presence of God or driven from the presence of Jesus, but Satan will be one of the first to be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 10. The scriptures teach us today the good news that Jesus Christ is the savior of mankind. Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven above from where we are expecting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is our savior. He is not just a teacher. He is not just a healer. Yes, you may believe that Jesus was one of the most gifted teachers of human history. And many people believe today that Jesus was a great teacher. If you ask a Buddhist, they'll say that he was a great teacher and he's an ascended master. 
People have all kinds of ideas of who Jesus was today. But the Bible teaches us that beyond being a teacher and a healer, he is our savior. And it is precisely because the evil we experience today has a satanic origin that we cannot overcome that satanic evil by simply having better Christian education, more complete parenting skills, carefully nuanced GC resolutions, or more efficient local church programs. These have no impact on the reality of evil in our lives. Our greatest enemy as a human race is not ignorance, and our greatest need is not education. Our greatest enemy as humans is not poverty, and our greatest need is not economic development. Our greatest enemy as humanity is not social division, and our greatest need is not social reconciliation. Our greatest enemy as human beings is not disease, and our greatest need is not the Affordable Care Act. Our greatest enemy as human beings is not poor government, and our greatest need is not a revolution. Our greatest enemy is not boredom, and our greatest need is not entertainment. Our greatest enemy is not having an iPhone 6, and our greatest need is for an iPhone 7. Rather, the scriptures teach that our greatest enemy is evil, a personal, malevolent being called Satan and his fallen angels, and our greatest need is a personal savior called Jesus Christ. That is our greatest need, and that savior in scripture is the man from Nazareth. The scriptures teach that Jesus Christ, according to Hebrews 13 and verse 8, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The scriptures teach that Jesus Christ has been given all authority in heaven and earth. And therefore, according to Hebrews 7.25, Jesus is able for all time to save those who approach God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. Somebody should say amen. We have a Savior who is able to save for all time those who come to God through him. Regardless of what Satan has been doing in our lives, we have a Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. So what then, or how then, do we practice these truths from Scripture? Well, firstly, we are to pray daily for deliverance from Satan. Now, um, you probably learned the Lord's Prayer when you were very young. And as I go around the world, some people have different versions of the Lord's Prayer. Some people say, deliver us from our debtors. I learned, uh, um, forgive us our debtors as we forgive our debtors. Uh, we learned in England. And um, how does it go? Uh, and forgive those that trespass against us as we forgive those that trespass against us. And there are different cultures have got different ways of expressing the Lord's Prayer. But there is one sentence that never changes in any culture. as this sentence. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I've never come across any variation of that one line from the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, and deliver us from evil. Now, a few lines before that, Jesus had said, give us this day our daily bread. By implication, this is a daily prayer for Christians. And Jesus taught Christians that we are to pray on a daily, daily basis that God might indeed deliver us from evil. Now, that's what the King James says. Now, a more literal translation of deliver us from evil goes like this. Deliver us from the evil one. Jesus does not command us to pray for deliverance from evil as an abstract concept, you know. Deliver me from the evil of my bus being late this morning. Deliver me from the evil of sleet falling from the sky as I'm rushing to work. Jesus does not tell us, or command us to, to pray for, for um, deliverance from the general evils of living in a fallen world. Jesus says quite literally, and deliver us from the evil one. That's a literal translation of what Jesus says. Jesus commands us today that we pray on a daily basis that God might deliver us from the daily attacks of Satan on our lives and on our persons. We are to pray that prayer daily. God, deliver me from the attacks of Satan. Revelation 12 and, and uh, 1 Peter 5 indicate clearly the identity of the attacker of Jesus' disciples. Uh, Revelation 12, I don't have this text for you, but uh, it's a famous verse where um, the Apostle John reveals the identity of that attacker. So he is the great dragon who was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. We are to pray daily for deliverance from Satan's attacks. And there is implicit within that command to pray a promise, isn't there? 
Why would Jesus command us to pray for deliverance from satanic attacks if God is not in a position to respond positively? When we pray to God to deliver us from the attacks of Satan, we pray to the only one who can deliver us from the attacks of Satan and to the only one who will deliver us from the attacks of Satan. Implicit within that prayer is a promise from God that when we turn to God in humble prayer, God will hear those prayers. The second thing we are to do is we are to stand firm in the armor of God. In the New Testament, we find that Christ has already defeated Satan in Ephesians 1. 19 through 23, that every conversion even today demonstrates that Christ is supreme over Satan. We find that the existence of the church today is proof positive that Satan's power over this earth has been broken. Do you remember in the time of Noah, how many righteous people existed on planet earth? One. Noah alone was righteous. And today, there are millions of people around the world who claim Jesus Christ as Lord. Maybe over a billion people today claim Jesus Christ as Lord. The existence of the body of Christ today is proof positive that Satan's power has been broken. Although he is a defeated foe, Satan is still dangerous whom we are to resist and not attack. Nowhere in the scriptures are we commanded to attack Satan and his demons, but we are commanded to stand firm. And when Satan attacks us, we are are told this is how you respond to Satan's attacks. Uh, The next slide on the screen um, shows us Ephesians 6 and verse 11. Uh, And Paul writes, he says, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You see the verb there, to stand. The next slide on the screen is Ephesians 6, 13. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And the next slide, Ephesians 6, 14, starts again with the command, stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness. Uh, three times the Apostle Paul commands us to, to stand. Now, imagine you're in the infantry in, in the time of Paul, and if you're being commanded by your commanding officer to stand with a shield in front of you, is that an offensive posture or is it a defensive posture? It's a defensive posture. We are to stand when we're attacked by Satan, but we're not to go out there looking for demons to cast out. Nowhere in scripture are we commanded to go on prayer walks to name and claim a city or a district for God and to to pray that all the demons be cast out. Nowhere does that command appear in scripture. But we are commanded in this battle against spiritual principalities to put on the armor of faith and have the shield of faith and the armor of God and have the shield of faith and to stand firm. We're not to run away. God gives us a breastplate. He gives us no covering for our backs. If we run from the attacks, we're we're vulnerable to Satan's attacks. We are commanded to stand with our face to the foe, confident that Jesus will indeed give us the victory. How do we put this into practice in our lives? Well, in Acts 19, the next slide upon the screen, when Paul was in Ephesus, which was a center of occultic activity, just as much of America is today, a center of occultic activity, We read there in Acts 19, verse 17 through 20. When this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, that is the sons of Sceva trying to cast out demons, and the demons attacking the seven sons of Sceva and beating them up. When this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, everyone was awestruck. And the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. Also, many of those who became believers confessed and disclosed their practices. A number of those who practiced magic collected their books and burnt them publicly. When the value of these books was calculated, it was found to come to 50,000 silver coins. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. The the truth about this story here is that we can cooperate with God in getting rid of satanic influence in our lives. Imagine your life is a city, and town hall and the hospital and the central plaza are clear of crime. But crime takes place in the side alleys and the back roads away from the glare of the public eye. And in all of our lives, we have those areas that are on public display that seem to be clean and pure and under the rulership of the kingdom of God. But in each of our lives, we have those back alleys and side alleys where we have yet to surrender sovereignty to God. And it is in precisely those areas that we are opening ourselves up for the attacks of Satan. Now, those side alleys, they may be um, attitudes of bitterness or hate towards somebody. It may be unresolved differences with people from the past. It may be actively watching stuff on the internet or playing violent games. It may be being abusive to your children or to your your spouse. 
It may be using addictive substances, engaging in, in pornography or pride or spiritual self-sufficiency, gossip or slander. There are many, many areas, there are many, many back alleys that may exist in our lives. And the church of Ephesus gave us an example of what we do when we want to clean up our lives. We get rid of those things in our lives. We go home today from church and we ask ourselves the question, is there an attitude of my heart? Is there a word of my tongue? Is there a deed of my hands? Is there something passing my eyes that I cannot give to God as a living sacrifice? What part of my life today can I not give as a living sacrifice to a holy God? And probably we all have a few things in those nooks and crannies of our lives. The church of Ephesus, the people of Ephesus, they burnt the things that came between them and the holy God. I'm not suggesting you go home and burn something. But I am suggesting that we go home to our homes today and we get to a, maybe a self-inventory and ask ourselves, where are those nooks and crannies of my life where I harbor attitudes and engage in activities that do not bring honor and glory to God? Those things need to be put away. Otherwise, those are open invitations for Satan to enter our lives. Let me give you an example. I was once ministering. There was a gentleman in my church who was, um, um, he's, he'd struggled with weight his entire life. He was um, almost crippled. And in desperation, he bought himself some CDs. And the idea behind the CDs was that you fell asleep and you played the CDs to yourself. It was kind of a form of self-hypnosis. You know, these messages being implanted into his brain. And I didn't know about this at the time <clears throat> until um, he, he stopped being able to sleep. And he'd wake up in the middle of the night cursing Jesus. And he'd come to church. And in the middle of a church service, he, he would be cursing Jesus from the top of his voice. Saying, What's going on with this guy? And so, um, with a group of elders, we started fasting and praying. We went to visit with him, and we said to him, Brother so-and-so, what's going on in your life? Tell us, uh, what have you been doing recently? He said, well, you know, I've I've been doing this, I've been doing that. We looked around the house. He traveled around the world. There were various occultic symbols disguised as tourist gifts sitting around the house. We said, well, brother, you probably want to get rid of those from your house physically. He said, I can't. I said, well, why not? Well, I can't. Well, well, why not? Well, I physically can't get rid of them. We'll just walk to the mantelpiece and put it in the trash and we'll take it outside. It took maybe three or four hours for him to muster up the courage to take those things off the mantelpiece and put them in the trash. We said, and uh, what have you been watching or listening to? What have you been putting into your mind? And uh, he said, okay, these are the cassettes I've been listening to. And my cursing of Jesus Christ occurred soon after I started listening to these in my sleep. These health self-hypnosis cassettes. And um, he said, well, in that case, you need to get rid of these things. Well, I can't. Well, why not? I need them. Well, no, you don't need them. You, you have to get rid of them. He said, well, you get rid of them. No, he said, you have to get rid of them. You have to reach across your bed and pick those up and put them in the trash. And until you do that, you will never be free of this demonic harassment. We spent two days with that gentleman before he could physically put his hands out and take up those DVDs and put them in the trash. He was delivered from that point on, from, from these waking up in the middle of the night, cursing Jesus, coming to church and cursing Jesus. Um, but it took two days of fasting and prayer, and I can tell you the atmosphere in the house, when they say it was heavy, man, you know, it was heavy, it was a heavy atmosphere. And once the stuff was cleared out of the house, the atmosphere changed instantaneously. He was a brother in the church, a church officer, who had unwittingly allowed Satan to enter his home uh, in, in the guise of doing good in his attempt to control his weight. But um, Satan attacked even under the guise of doing good. Thirdly, we are to turn to God in prayer and fasting when under satanic attack. Uh, the next slide on the screen, Matthew 17, verses 14 through 21. It describes the occasion where Jesus has just been transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he, and he comes down to the valley, and the, the nine disciples are down there. They've been fighting among themselves over who was the greatest. They were jealous of the three that went with Jesus to the mountain. And um, they've been separated from Jesus. Characteristics of many disciples today. And um, a father had brought his child to them, um, uh, uh, presenting as, as epilepsy. But Jesus recognized that beyond the epilepsy, there was a satanic cause to that epilepsy. It wasn't a physical cause. It says, and Jesus rebuked the devil... And he departed out of him, that is the child. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart. And they said, why could we not cast him out? 
And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove. And nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit, this kind, as in this kind of spirit, goeth, out, goeth not out except by prayer and fasting. Jesus counseled the disciples that when you are faced with a demonic attack, you are not to try and dialogue with the demon. You're not to try and dialogue with the demon to know his name, as some people would suggest today. You're not to try and identify from the demon his geographical territory that he controls, or the person that he controls, or the spirit that he controls. Even though people today will say that. Jesus says when you're faced with the presence of a demon, you do not dialogue with the demons, but you turn to God in prayer and fasting. That is a Christian response, because on our own, we cannot fight those demons. The sons of Sceva learned that to their own, uh, they were beaten up by that demon in, in Ephesus. We turn to God with prayer and fasting. We find that when Jesus was about to confront Satan in the wilderness, what did he do for 40 days? He prayed and he fasted. When Daniel was struggling in Daniel 10, because the 70 years were up, and the new king of Persia, Cyrus, had yet to send the Jews back home again, even though the prophecy of Jeremiah 29 and 25 had been fulfilled. What was Daniel doing for 21 days? He was praying and he was fasting. And Jesus appears to Daniel and reveals that behind the scenes, while you were praying and fasting, there's been a struggle going on against the princes of Persia and the princes of Greece, those demonic spirits with, with control over those regions. We find that when Esther... When God's people were under attack in the story of Esther, even though the book of Esther is the only Bible in the book, by, book in the Bible where the word God is not mentioned, clearly this was a satanic attack. Why? Because if Haman had succeeded in eliminating the Jewish race, then the Messiah could not have come because the Messiah was going to be of the family of Abraham and of David. So this was a satanic attack. And how did Esther call the people to respond? Three days of prayer and fasting. When Samuel uh, met with the people of Israel, and they'd suffered defeat, and, and the Ark of the Covenant had been taken by the Philistines. Remember that story? When the Ark eventually came back to Israel, the, the people of Israel came together and said, what happened? And, Dan, and Samuel said, this happened because you worship the Ashtoreths and the Moleks and the Baals. You worship the, the gods of this land. And my version of the Bible calls those gods um, goat demons. Some versions of the tribe Bible literally call those false gods goat demons. Have you ever seen a picture of, of Satan like um, a man with a goat's hind legs? The Bible actually says in three places it calls these false gods goat demons. They are living demons who the Israelites were worshipping. And Samuel says to the people of Israel, you've been worshipping these demons masquerading as Ashtoreths, Baals, and, and, and Moleks. Now to free yourself from demonic oppression, we're going to have a corporate day of prayer and fasting. As we look through... Um, uh, in the Bible, John the Baptist, before he engaged in, in mission, before he came across the Jordan to preach, he was on a partial fast of, of um, wild locusts and honey. So we find throughout the scriptures that whenever God's people are engaged in encounters with Satan, prayer and fasting are the means that God has ordained by which his, he will be glorified and his perfect will will be done. So what do we say in conclusion this morning? The biblical worldview is that there has been a fall and the human race is broken and wounded. The biblical worldview is that the evil in our world is bigger than we are. It is basically of supernatural origin and Satan is behind all evil. And our struggle today is not against human forces of evil, but it is against spiritual principalities and powers. And it is precisely because of the enormity of this vast evil that we need a personal savior to save us. The Bible tells us in the fullness of time, God so loved the world that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, the one who was anointed with the Holy Spirit and God's power to free us from the dominion of Satan. Acts 10.38 says this, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the, by the devil, for God was with him. Later, after Jesus ascended to heaven, the entire community of disciples was filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And thus filled with heavenly power, the early church engaged in three basic activities. They proclaimed the gospel, they healed the sick, and they delivered Satan's captives. And today we want to proclaim the gospel and maybe heal the sick, but we've forgotten all about delivering Satan's captives. But that is what the early church did. Jesus was very clear on why he came to earth. Luke 4, verse 18, he said, He that is God has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind 
to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus did not come merely to teach lifestyle or ethics. He came to deliver us from Satan. And so Jesus commanded us each day to pray and deliver us from the evil one. And the fact is, and the fact that we can pray this prayer with the promise that God will indeed deliver us from Satan is good news indeed. It's wonderful news. Because satanic oppression leads nowhere except death. Um, just recently, as you know, I was in Erbil, northern Iraq. And uh, <clears throat> I lay down the first night there. The hotel was empty, except myself and an American friend from Lincoln College. And uh, we lay down there, and the streets were empty, and ISIS were just down the road. And he said to me, he said, um, what happens if ISIS comes to town? I said, well, I guess they'll come to town. I was trying to get to sleep at this stage. I said, well, they'll come to town, I guess. He says, and what happens if they come to the hotel? I said, well, when they come to the hotel, they'll probably put a pistol to the receptionist's desk and say, where are you Westerners? And he'll say, because he wants to save his life, they're in this room here, and there's the key. They'll come upstairs, and they'll kidnap us. And uh, we'll probably appear on CNN. Not for reasons that you want to appear on CNN. And he said, so what are we going to do about it? Should we move hotels? I said, no, we're not going to move any hotels tonight. We're going to ask God to send his angels to protect us, and we'll turn over and we're going to go to sleep. And so we prayed. And uh, we claimed the promise of Psalm 34, 7 and 8, that the angel of the Lord watches round about them that fear him and delivereth them. But the next verse is beautiful. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are those who take refuge in him. When you taste the protection of God and his deliverance from the forces of evil, you can indeed sleep easily at night. And that is what we did that night in Erbil. My prayer for each of us is that as we turn these matters over to God and clean our lives up and turn to God with fasting and prayer, that we will indeed taste and see that the Lord is good, that it is a blessed thing to take refuge in him, that we may be able to sleep easily in our beds at night. Deliver us from evil, says Jesus. And that is my prayer for each one of us today. May God bless us as we live lives in the kingdom, lives that are under satanic attack, but lives that have the promise of heavenly protection. May God bless us in this coming week. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.